0: As long as we knew back in 2007 and 8 what was happening to our world in terms of advanced technological changes why in 2019 were we as a nation ill-equipped to deliver an education to a child's home in response to the pandemic and i would submit to you that it's because we saw what was happening but we chose the path of least resistance as an institution and stood by the status quo and we paid a dear price for it. And my thought today is, we have another chance to get it right. And we have to be thinking about the past, working in the present, but also advancing toward our future and our children's future.
1: Hey Ray, how are you? Hey Clay, I'm fine. It's been a little bit of time, you know, but, I'm hoping that uh, you know our uh, messages all tie together and we have a great day today.
2: Well I think we will but you know before we start today I'd like to go back and talk about the conversation we had last week with uh, Sarah and Sean.
1: Yeah and you know what was really interesting about that Sean McKenna who's the superintendent in Griswold Connecticut you know um, we challenged him a bit on the question of you know how do you how do you think and lead for the future when you get all this day to day stuff coming in that just kind of disconnects you from where you want to go. And, um, you know, he really was, he really was quite clear about how he as a superintendent was looking ahead and was going to advocate on behalf of his kids in the world that they were going to live in and not the world that everybody else has lived in in the past. And Sarah, Sarah spoke up quite a bit about, um, their talking with the students and the amount of time and the action that they give to student voice. I thought that was pretty, uh, I think that was pretty exceptional. Um, I know uh, Jeff Dillon talked about that. I know uh, today we're gonna be engaging with a real thought leader in education as well. And so I think think those are the people, these are the people I should say that I think are really beginning to set the pace for leadership in this VUCA world.
2: Yeah, you know, I thought it was really incredible how You know, Sean, as a superintendent, laid out a vision, and Sarah and her team executed against that vision. It allowed them to kind of move through these turbulent times with purpose and with passion. Um, So that was really exciting. Today, we're going to talk to another visionary leader, a friend of mine from years and years of experience working uh, near each other in terms of the work, not in terms of the geography. Uh, we're going to talk with Don Haddad, who uh, is a superintendent of schools in St. Vrain which is in the Longmore, Longmont, Colorado area. Uh, Don has been one of those guys that, you know, you just he he leads quietly in some ways, but it also kind of moves mountains. And so those of us who were in proximity to him as superintendents, we kind of looked at what's Don doing?
1: Yeah, you're right about that. I I had a chance, you know, to meet Don. I was doing a, an event up in um in Colorado for the superintendents. And, uh, once I got off of talking, um, I got this, you know, kind of knock on my back for a minute and it was Don and, um, he and I, I think spent, uh, an hour, uh, just chatting about the future. And I was talking about polarities and he was, I know all about that. And, you know, this was a superintendent that, you know, he lives in the future. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, before we get to the future, let's talk a little bit about Don, you know, and Don has been the superintendent in the Longmont area for a number of years now, but he's been in education for 37 years. You know, the cool thing that I think is as I, as I look through his bio was not just the wealth of experience, but the value that Don puts into making connections, connections with his teachers, his students, the business community, the larger Colorado community, Um, And I think that gives the vision that he's established a little more strength and credibility. And so with that, I'm gonna turn this over to Don to spend just a few minutes talking to us a little bit about St. Varane and some of the things that make it special. And then we'll get into some deep follow-up questions.
1: Hi, Don.
0: Hi, how are you guys? It's good 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 to talk with you. You know, i uh, actually finishing my 15th year as the superintendent here, my 23rd year in the system as a whole, because I was in other roles before the superintendency. But we are currently the seventh largest school district in Colorado out of 178 school districts. We have 60 schools and we have 33,000 students, but we're growing very fast. Our build-out plan is for 75,000 students. And we sit on 411 square miles that includes, as you said, Longmont, but also Lyons, Mead, Frederick, Firestone, Dacono, Erie, and Niwot. And I work within that 411 square miles with seven different mayors and uh, large businesses, small businesses, a whole host of uh, a students, parents, and, and you know it as your experiences in the superintendency as well. So it's a, I believe it's a great school district and I enjoy being here we're excited about the work.
2: That's exciting.
0: That's exciting. You know,
2: one of the things that I've kind of noted, Don, from, you know, being a friend and also from kind of looking from afar is that you have an orientation towards the jobs of the future. Um, Could you talk a little bit about, first of all, how you kind of came to that mindset that you had to prepare differently for the kids of tomorrow then perhaps we used to prepare kids in terms of subject matter.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, back in 2007-8, when I was becoming the superintendent, there were a lot of things happening across Colorado and across the United States and across the world. And one of the things that we were trying to recover from was a massive budget shortfall long before my tenure here. And we had tried, previous administrations had tried to pass mill levy overrides to recover from the deficit. Long story short, they all failed. We decided in my first year as superintendent, we were going to go for another one, but we needed to change the narrative. And at that time, we were looking at the way in which the world was changing. And you saw Steve Jobs, in you know, introduced the iPhone. You saw the onset of Twitter and Facebook and Hadoop, which is largest software platform, and GitHub, the largest software repository, and artificial intelligence with Watson, and fracking, and the Kindle with Jeff Bezos, all of these things were happening, and yet public education was still in that space of the status quo. And So we've decided to take advantage of a changing world and present to our community a vision around the future and what our students were going to need to be competitive and have that strong competitive advantage in this changing highly complex and competitive global environment in which they were entering. And so the combination of the vision and the request worked. We passed the mill levy and we began to transition to what we referred to as this system of foundation innovation. And the foundation represented the strong academic and co-curricular core that we had all been used to and accustomed to in growing up, so that all of our parents weren't uh, concerned that we were going to not prepare their children for ACTs and SATs and have a strong math and language arts and social studies background. But what we also shared with them is that we need to layer on top of that foundation robust innovation so that combination of the two would actually prepare them for their world versus our world in the past. And so it's the two of those things, the foundation and the innovation. It's built off of design thinking where our students will you know, empathize a problem, ideate solutions, prototype it, test it, work in teams, continue to revise it. It emphasizes critical thinking, a one-to-one initiative, and a whole host of other things that are causing our children to be able to think through complex issues versus reverting back to rote memorization. Now they do have that strong foundation, but when you layer that on top of with the ability to innovate and create and to think critically outside of the box, so to speak, those are two very powerful forces that come together. And that's been the catalyst for, for what we're doing. And, you know, I will ask you this one question, not for you to answer it, but Just for people to think about, as long as we knew back in 2007 and eight, what was happening to our world in terms of advanced technological changes, why in 2019 were we as a nation ill-equipped to deliver an education to a child's home in response to the pandemic? And I would submit to you that it's because we saw what was happening, but we chose the path of least resistance as an institution and stood by the status quo, and we paid a dear price for it. And my thought today is, we have another chance to get it right. And we have to be thinking about the past, working in the present, but also advancing toward our future and our children's future. And that's our mindset here in St. Frank.
1: Yeah, you know, you know, Dom, when you said that, I, uh, the phrase that came into my head was, uh, new world, same humans right like the the world is changing and we still have the same population of humans kind of um making kind of making decisions and guiding the way and there your 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 question which i think is um is an important one and 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 very thoughtful about you know why weren't we ready following the path you know the the easiest path to go down and um it's be, it's become that way for a long time and even now as we see GTP four and five and everything that's coming immediately. Everyone's, you know, they're, they're, they're frantic about it. They're saying, you know, we can't let this take over. And, uh, the, the fact is we have to let the humans play with this stuff to figure out, you know, where we go with it. And I, and I know that you're of that mindset because I know that this, the level of programs, the level of, um, of stepping forward that you've taken as a leader is, um, I think, is just outstanding. And I and so I wonder, like, how do you balance your life with everything that's going on? And we see the pace of change happening so quickly, right? It's happening, like, overnight. GTP3 came out, and then all of a sudden, three, two two and a half months later, it's four. So it's like someone told me today, someone told me yesterday, actually, they said, if you get an article that's labeled, to, that's going to talk about AI, you should read it that day because the next day it's probably going to be old. Um, I, I just love to know, you know, how do you, how do you balance that work? What do you, you know, what, you know, how do you make sure that with these seven mayors, you've got a balance of the past as well as the future?
0: Well, you know, a couple of things. I, I serve on a number of boards and I serve on the Colorado Business Roundtable Board, which I have got 35 colleagues on that board. that represent a lot of the major corporations, their CEOs. I also sit on the Longmont Area Economic Development Councils and the various chambers of commerce and been on their boards. And we talk about these things all the time from the perspective of economic development, public safety, property values, both commercial and residential, the quality of a service industry, the workforce pipeline, what does the industry need and require in terms of future workforce? And then our democracy and public, you know, knowledge around our nation and what it stands for. All of these things, in addition to preparing our children for uh, standard tests and things like those. But the thing I would share with you is we also, uh, we travel a lot and we interact a lot with people who are out in front of all this. Our most recent travels took us to California with Cisco Technologies and they're implementing along with us in partnership. A pretty robust telecommunication system where our children can learn from anywhere, anytime, come into classrooms in real time, live. So that, you know, enhances our offerings. But one of the things they were talking about is what they're referring to as this double exponential curve. And the first curve was artificial intelligence as we knew it with Watson, et cetera, et cetera. But this double exponential curve is now going to build off of artificial intelligence. So you not only have humans giving input, but you now you have the artificial intelligence building off of itself into this stratosphere. And so the trajectory of change is going to be unlike anything we've ever experienced. And I think even though most people can talk about that and grasp it maybe a little bit theoretically, they don't have any idea and we don't have any idea what's coming down the pipe. And so we have to be prepared to pivot. And this is where we're staying out in front of the curve, working with these folks who do this for a living, understanding the workforce demands and the way in which our world is going to change. You know, I tell you, it's almost like moving from a small, moderate crest to this massive series of tsunamis that represent the change. And if you're not ready for it and you can't pivot, You really have to wonder what the future holds for our institution, public education. We can't do what we did since 2008 until today and expect to be anywhere near ready.
2: So, Don, one of the cool things about being up front and seeing these things is that you do have at least a minimal understanding of what's possible, because we can't really know yet because we, we just... We haven't seen the future. It's coming. But how do you build, you know, on your team some depth in terms of knowing these things that you know, because as a leader, you get to travel?
0: Well, one of the things we've done is we've diversified our staff. We have many who work within our system who are from IBM, who are from places, you know, the corporate sector, and they have that balance. They have that knowledge. We also have, you know, over 120 business and corporate partners. And we work with them on a regular basis. They sit on our curricular advisory committees. They provide internships. They provide apprenticeships. They provide all types of consultation that helps us, you know, a Boeing might help us to understand where things are at and what's happening. An Apple, an IBM, a Lockheed Martin, you know, Toyota, you name it. And so these types of connections give us expertise that we may not otherwise have And many of them have now come to work for us in our innovation centers and other places. So we're tied into the business, the corporate, the civic, the education, parents, you name it. And it's really an exciting time because we're all learning from each other and and moving forward at a pretty pretty good pace. I'm getting ready to travel to Switzerland um, with a, a trip that's being sponsored by CareerWise and the governor's office to look at their apprenticeship programs and then try to bring some of that back to Colorado. And it's those types of uh, experiences, the exposure to what's going on globally is critically important. And unfortunately, too many educators spend their time trying to figure out how to lower class sizes, which is really important, how to manage their budget, which is really important. But you have to be able to do all those things and keep moving forward. It's, it's like you said, Blake, it's a balance. You cannot land in one part of your responsibility as a leader and ignore the other. It's just not, it's not conducive to this environment. So you have to be a strong manager and you have to be a strong leader. And the combination is critical.
1: Yeah, that's you know, that's exciting. And um, <clears throat> I know you know, I, I can see you doing that because I think. I see you as one of these people that just never stops and um, is constantly moving. And I'm, I'm interested, Don, as, as we have, you know, a lot of listeners that are school leaders and I keep thinking about as a former dean, um, you know, how do you train leaders in education for this kind of work? Because when we look back at how we were trained and I'm, you know, um, I know on the podcast you can't see the people, but I'm looking at, you know, three superintendents that, um uh We've had our time in the trenches and, um, we know that the training we had during our, you know, during that period of entry into the profession does, it doesn't really work in the world today. Um, and, and you mentioned a little bit, Don, you talked about how important certain things are that, you know, there are things we need to make sure we do. And then, which I would say is, is taking care of the past. But then we've got all these new things about the future and i'm just wondering like if you know in your mind because i i love the way you think you know what are the kinds of skills that our leaders in our systems need today to be a, a successful superintendent to manage seven mayors and all the business demands that are moving quick and fast and then you have these a school where you know we're really not known as track stars in terms of moving um <laughs> we we're kind of sedentary and um and we've got to, we've got to, we've got to get leadership and all of our schools kind of leading this work that you're talking about.
0: Well, you know, a couple of things, a couple of things I would share with you. Every single leadership position that is hired in same Brain, and we're the largest business in the county and people don't often think about it in terms of that, but we have 5,500 employees and over a billion dollars worth of budgets and all that type of things. Every leadership position goes through a series of interviewing steps, but they all come through my office at the end. That's a dean. That's an assistant principal. That's a principal. That's a director. That's an executive director. I know that they've been vetted for their credentials. What I'm vetting them for is, are you a good fit into this accelerated pace culture? Are you born out of that mindset that you are looking to advance all the time? that you're a game changer, that you're an impact player, and that you understand what hard work looks like, and that you have that capacity to think beyond what's right in front of you. And that's a really important step that I think a lot of people miss. They delegate that step, that final step, and people aren't always looking for that piece of the puzzle. The other thing that you know, I would share with you, and I I had this conversation with members of the business and corporate sector. People think of us as public educators, and we are, and that's our passion. But we also have to have a business mindset. We have to be strong in fiscal management. We have to be strong in technological management, in human resources, in the nutrition services area, in the transportation area in the construction and operations and maintenance area. And all of these things require a really, really thorough review of who you're going to hire as the superintendent. Unfortunately, not in all cases, but in many cases, the hiring process is subject to clicks. It's subject to who's my friend. It's subject to who does someone on the board know? or vice versa. And the hiring process for superintendents needs to change. We need to start looking at people who really have a balance of fiscal, managerial, education, leadership, conflict management, all of these things, and start moving away from, I know this person. And and this is something that I have shared with the various search firms that the process has to become more complex and sophisticated to make sure that you are getting that right person. You know, it's not an accident that the tenure of superintendents is so short. It's not so much that the job is unmanageable. It's that the person that they hired in the first place was not ready for the job. And I don't say that across the board because there's certainly some outstanding superintendents out there. But when you look at the pace of turnover, and the story after story after story of a failed experience, you have to begin to question the process. And educators need to embrace that we don't know everything we need to know. And we have to open our door and broaden our scope so that we're letting other experts into our our field. And it, it's really important. It's, a, it's one of the most important things that I can talk about in terms of what you just asked me, how to. Hire and prepare
1: people. Yeah, well, actually, when um, when I was at the Gates Foundation, um, one of the criticisms that some of the researchers that were looking at public education said, you know, we uh, some of our biggest our biggest errors have made at the point of hiring, and um, the fact that you know the world has changed in that that we need to have people that um, can can look back, but also they need to have that skill of looking forward, having a clear vision of where they're going to take an organization. And, um, and I know from having conversations with you, Don, one of the things that in this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, crazy world we live in that, you know, the components of having a strong vision, you know, is, is one of the elements of the work you've been doing. Um, and, and, and kind of looking at that and saying, you know, we, we, that's where we're going to go. How we get there will be a de- almost a day-to-day deter- determination because things change so quickly. Well, and,
0: the, and part of the reason leadership is so important is because there are a lot of competing interests out there who are continuing to sidetrack the conversation. You know, mm-hmm. talking about yes. like critical race theory, and we've been talking about a yep. handful of other things. And, you know, by design, keeping public education off balance, when we should be thinking about the future, and how we're gonna prepare our children. And if if leaders are you know, caught up in this quagmire of playing political defense all the time, then it doesn't stand a reason that they're gonna be out there with that vision out in front leading. And so I think it's really important that uh, we understand the, the impact of leadership here in this environment especially, that we can keep focused on our purpose
2: and our mission. You know, Don, One of the things that you and I have talked about is that some of the structures that surround education are in desperate need of change. Uh, You know, I think we started to talk about some of that when we were talking about the hiring practices, um, how they're broken, because they're also tied to certifications that may keep some of the best and brightest from standing in front of our kids. I know that you have been a strong proponent for kind of building the structures that are necessary to let education thrive in the 21st century. That's not just about playing defense. There's some offense there that we need to think about. You want to talk a little bit about that, about what you're doing in Colorado to, to like open the doors to some of the best and brightest to be in front of our kids, but also, you know, taking a look at some of those kind of archaic
0: measurements that we used to measure, used to measure success. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's a, Great time to be having this conversation. We're just coming up on the 40th anniversary of a nation at risk. And there are now studies that are coming out that are showing this kind of flat line of scores on standardized tests. But what's not flat is the billions of dollars that have been pumped into this system that could have been used for class size reduction, for hiring practices, for technological advancement, and it's important that we understand that we're still operating off of a system decades ago, even though we're in this double exponential curve period of time. And so one of the things that we did about a year and a half ago is we submitted legislation that required a third party audit of our accreditation systems. First time it's happened in Colorado for sure. And I'm not sure anywhere else if it's happened, but we passed that into law. The audit took place, and it revealed a number of significant problems structurally and from a scope perspective with the system. Then the next thing we've done is we submitted legislation to convene a large task force of educators, business folks, others to make recommendations for upgrading and advancing the current system. And it looks like that's headed towards the governor's office now, and we're optimistic that he will sign it. And the purpose of it is to say, look, we have to broaden our perspective of what makes a quality school and what makes a quality student experience. What we found with the accreditation system, just to give you a couple of flaws, you know, first of all, they administer the tests two months before the end of the year, but they report out the scores to the public as if they were end of the year data results and grade level results. You don't get the results back for five, six months. So it's hard to to make the adjustments you need to make. It's attached to an arbitrary time limit, which tests stress levels versus reading capacity. The benchmarks constantly change. And I mean, I, I can go on and on and on just with the structural piece of it. But then the substantive quality piece of it, there's so much more involved than a test score to determine if a child's ready for this complex world. So I'm not suggesting we eliminate tests. That's not my point. I'm suggesting we clean up the process and we broaden our perspective on what makes a quality student. Because what gets measured gets done. And if we're not measuring innovation, if we're not measuring advanced manufacturing, if we're not measuring that that's the reason people aren't going to be focused on those things. And we need to be focused on those things. So you're very optimistic and we're going to, the uh, I'm participating in this event in uh, end of July out at the Reagan Library in California, where they're going to be looking at some of these accreditation issues and results from the 40 year anniversary of a nation at risk. Uh, to see if our education system is is positioned well to move us into the future.
1: You know, it's, it's y- your your comments, Don, are so online and um, I have a good a good friend of mine malbert smith who's a psychometrician and um malbert um was the was the guy who created with metametrics the uh all the different assessments for uh grade level and mathematics you know he was the he was the guy that kind of laid those out but anyway what he says about the kind of way we assess our kids now he said you know ray i go to the doctor's office get my my yearly physical and when i go into the uh, the doctor's office and they they take my blood pressure. It's always higher than when I'm at home, right? And, um, and then they, they, they ask all these questions about that. He said, it's just like a kid when, when they go in there to take that one test, right? That one test that's going to rank them. Their, their tension is up and the, it's higher. It's their, their pressure. The pressure on them is higher. They don't perform as well. And we use those kinds of instruments. Why aren't we using the instruments that, you know, industry uses it's by performance. We see what people can do rather than an assessment, a test. Um, and I think Melbert's point was on any given day, his blood pressure could be sky high or really low. It's not what that day rates, it's over a period of time. And I think um, what you're saying about the, our need in education to really look differently in assessment is critical. And I'm with you, we're not saying we shouldn't assess, but we should assess in a thoughtful, appropriate way. That's been That's been missing. And then at our labor force has been completely, um, needs to be completely looked at. We, we have the same labor force as we had in the 1800s. We have one teacher, one classroom, and that's not the same. So as we start to retool and rebuild for the future, um, this leadership that you're providing, I think, is just outstanding. I think you really kind of... Um, Making some uh, excellent points about where we need to take this work.
0: Well, and you from, know why education. it's so important. I mean, you guys have both had tremendously successful careers and you've seen it firsthand. But the other thing that's really important is the narrative around public education is sculptured by these results. And so these results have to be accurate. And when we report out to the public, that only 40% of our children in the third grade can read at grade level, but we fail to report to the public that they still have two months of instruction. And we also fail to report to the public that the test is administered to many students whose language is not the first language spoken at home. And we don't report to the public that we've hindered the testing process with this arbitrary time limit. And we don't report to the public that we continue to move the benchmark every time our kids advance, we just move the bar, so to speak. So we allow this narrative that public education is failing, when in many cases it's succeeding at a very high level. Now that doesn't mean there aren't places in need of advancement and growth, but if our narrative in this country is not fully behind the institution, That's a big problem because 90% of our children K through 12 are enrolled in our public schools. So we have to have inspiration and a sense of we're all in this together and not be trying to fracture the system based on a false narrative. So it's not just benign when you report these things out inaccurately. It's damaging to our national security and a whole host in our economy. I think fundamentally, you know, one of the other
2: problems with it is it only measures a small part of what we do with young people. You know, there are so many other positive aspects of this great experiment, the public school, that failed to be recognized. You know, you you talk about our culture today. Where else do people of all different income strata? Come together? Where else do people, of all different ethnic backgrounds and skin colors, come together and work for a common good and develop some common understandings that link us all together? You know, I, we don't ever measure that kind of thing. What we do is we, we tend to highlight the divides, the fractures, the less than's. Um, and so, Don, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just thought we'd really need to emphasize the point that so much more of what goes on in school isn't measured that any report or judgment based on a test score is insufficient and
0: incomplete. Well, and Clayton you never interrupted me because what you said is spot on and you know the the other thing that I would share with you is part of what is igniting the business community a little bit is understanding that they can't fill their workforce because our system has choked off that workforce pipeline. And when you look at all of the ways in which kids can be successful and pursue amazing careers, we have to make sure that our system is limiting growth and limiting that pipeline. And uh, so we need to, we need to broaden it and we need to keep tests as part of it, but fix the structural process of testing so that we're yielding accurate data and not misinforming the public.
2: Uh, Absolutely. You know, I want to come back just for the second. So, so, you know, Ray talked early on about where do our leaders come from, and you talked about a selection process, but I want to step back even further than that to our colleges and universities or to our leadership development programs in terms of certification for superintendents. Don, do you think that they're broad enough and deep enough given the complexity of what you face?
0: Is there any way to improve that process? Well, I do think that there is a way, I think, getting more practitioners involved in the creation of the process, working with, and we're starting to work with multiple universities around what that experience would need to look like in order to prepare future teachers, future leaders, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that there's a way to improve that. One of the other things is I think we have to relax our perspective on a set of credentials that allows you to do this work. I uh, I think that, you know, four-year colleges and universities are going to have to move in sync with the changing environment. And so as we look at, you know, who's going to be a teacher? Who's going to be a superintendent? Who's going to be a principal? And then backwards map the process of preparing them because it's a much different environment today. I mean, if you can't manage the politics, you're not gonna last long in a leadership position. If your communication skills aren't strong, if your resiliency isn't strong, if your ability to think in systems, which is oftentimes missing, and how many districts are out there that are described as a district of schools versus a school district? You know, the systems approach, one of the things, from a financial perspective, where a lot of leaders get blown out of the water is they don't go through financial preparation. You know, I look at the amount of money that flows through public education and this constant drumbeat that there's not enough money. Well, I would argue that there is enough money in many cases. It's just that we don't leverage the economy of scale and the systems approach of maximizing our capacity where money is concerned. And if you look at the majority of people out there that are superintendents, or maybe not the majority, but certainly enough of them that have no background in finances and depends solely on, the uh, you know, a CFO who's going to give them numbers but not strategy. That's a problem. You know, and so I think we just have to think about all these things and help our organizations prepare our
1: people. Don, one of the things that, um, you know, I, I do a lot of work with districts around the country, and one of the uh, uh, kind of focused on this future focused work. And one of our biggest challenges is getting a district to stop some programs and start other programs. We never seem to have the ability to stop. We have only the ability to add. And I think we we look at it as an additive thing. I, I see it all the time. I, I uh, actually been talking about innovation by subtraction. How do we make space in our system for the for the new and different things that we do need to do and stop doing some of the things we've been doing. It's just been—it's almost—it's almost, um, it's almost uh, impossible to go to to get engage in a conversation about things we should stop doing in our schools. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about
2: that. Well, before he does, if you don't—if you don't mind, to, to build on that, you know, one of the things that I've heard is I've traveled the country this last year talking to superintendents is superintendents are telling me that they don't necessarily have within the district, the expertise to manage some of the challenges that they face and still focus on student teaching and learning. So, you know, I'm hearing things about people saying that whether it's after-school tutoring, whether it's food service, whether it's custodial, they're saying, you know what, I'm going to let somebody else who has expertise do that for us, managing like our after-school, before-school care programs. Um, in order to create the capacity for me to focus on what's going on. And so with that, I'm going to turn it back to you uh, to, to comment on Don. And I, I didn't mean to editorialize, but I do think that there are opportunities to create capacity if we just think a little bit differently about our business.
0: Absolutely. No, absolutely C- couldn't agree with you more. You know, back in 2008, when we were going for that mill levy override, the first one that we've ever passed, we passed it. But it was in 2008. And as you know, that was right at the doorstep of the Great Recession. And so the Great Recession kind of wiped out and made it a wash. And so we knew we needed to keep our promises. So we went back in and we went through this activity. We we put everything on the table in our system and found, you know, about the same amount of money that was being spent, to your point, Ray, on on things that were no longer tied to our mission, but people were not willing to confront that because, oh, that was this person's pet project. Well, that was a really influential person in the community that's behind that, and you may not be able to survive it politically if you remove that. But we said, we're going to leverage this opportunity to create a financially sound and stable organization. So we reduced our ongoing expenditures by over $15, $16 million a year with all of these things that weren't tied to our mission or vision any longer, and we're able to now move forward with our new vision. And that is one of the problems why I say public education may have more money than it needs right now, or at least enough, if they're willing to look at their system annually and identify areas of advancement. And that includes letting some things go, strategically letting them go and leveraging that economy of scale and optimizing your spending capacity. And to your point, Clayton, you've gotta have the right people in place. And that's part of the reason why the hiring process is so critically important to identify those leaders. I would tell you there's probably five or six people, four or five people right now in our organization that aspire to the superintendency and their experiences are leading them to that. And our deputy superintendent could be the superintendent yesterday. And so it's not all about one person. It's about building capacity and our principals, building capacity and our assistant principals and our teachers, you know, so it's, uh, it's definitely
2: doable. So, Ray, I know you might have a final question, but before we do close out, one of the things that I wanna ask is, how, Don, are you, in your mind, when you go home in the evening, how are you measuring a successful day or we're on the right path? How do you do that?
0: Well, you know, it depends on the day, but I will tell you this, like today I came in and I had our team calculating our projected graduation rate and it's not a day, project, it's all year, but, and then I looked at what's the percentage of our kids who took the PSAT and the SAT and did we get all of the signatures needed for when kids are opting out? And so I talked to uh, our learning services department about graduation, then our assessment department about testing. Then I went to the finance department saying, what's the end result of our negotiations process going to be from a fiscal perspective? And then, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And so on that day, today, success is all of these things working, but from a larger picture, success is did we add new partners to our system? Did we bring on new businesses? Did we bring on new fans, new people that are going to rave about the work that we're doing? Did we connect with a new civic organization? Did we do something today that adds value to our community and that our community adds value to us? So that at the end of today, we're better than we were at the end of yesterday. And did we, through our communications process, further advance people in their understanding of the complexity of our work so that we continue to add those, what you call raving fans of of your school system. Those are ways in which I measure. um, And then as you both know, it's always a good day when when you can say 33,000 students and 5,500 employees and 66,000 parents, we didn't have a crisis today. So that's
1: always a good thing too. So Don, just uh, as, as kind of we wrap this up, you know, I, I would normally say like, what do, you think, what do you think his district is gonna look like in five years? But what I'd, I'd like actually like to say, what do you think it, it, it might look like over the next three years? You know, with these things that you've been juggling, and I, I know you're somebody who's always looking out there. I'm, uh, I I I um I look to you and think, um, you know, there's somebody that's constantly got his eyes on the horizon. But what do you what do you see for the district in the next three years? What big changes might you see?
0: Well, one thing we're gonna probably have another four to five schools. We're gonna also be seeing in terms of uh, our telecommunication system. You know, we have 10 high schools now, soon to be 11, but you'll be able to take a class from any one of our high schools in real time, live at any other high school through our telecommunication systems. People can learn anywhere, anytime and very sophisticated technology, much more sophisticated than what we you know, were using during the pandemic. So I see that as really advancing our capacity. We're going to build out our innovation center from 55,000 square feet to 100,000 square feet. And all of our schools will be much further along with the implementation of artificial intelligence. Our cybersecurity systems will be much stronger. Our virtual reality, our augmented reality, our business partnerships and connections will advance at a pretty fast pace and our student growth. So there's just a lot of excitement happening You know, our main focus of our retreat, we started three years ago, focusing on artificial intelligence, but we're ready to take it to yet another level. And that will be a a pretty fun endeavor to see how artificial intelligence is going to get deep into the classroom and help us give kids experiences. So I, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm finishing my 38th year and going into my 39th, getting close to 40 years and, I've never been more excited about what the future holds.
1: Yeah. I've I've actually said to people, this is the most exciting time to be in education is this, this, this VUCA world where there's so much change going on. It's, it's creating more and more opportunities. um, As long as we open our eyes to where we need to take this system. It's been really a pleasure um, having a conversation with today, Don Clayton,
2: Absolutely. Don, thank you, first of all, for sharing the time with us. I know how busy you are. and Anybody who listens to this podcast It's going to get a sense of what your day is like. You actually gave me a little bit of like a postpartum uh, feeling here because it's been so long since I've had one of those days, but I started to walk through it with you and it scared me a little bit. So I I want to say thank you. I want to say that, uh, you know what, this conversation is going to continue. I hope that we can have you on again sometime and really kind of drill down and talk to how you're applying AI in schools how, you know, what some of these academies that you've created actually look like. Maybe we could even bring in some of your graduates or some of your uh, students who wanna talk about the experience that you're helping to create for them. Uh, so with that, we're gonna say goodbye and kind
0: of wish you only the best until we talk again. Yeah, well, I have the respect for both of you. You're both good friends and we both had wonderful impact on many students. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to visit with you. and would love to further
1: the
2: conversations. K-12 Confidential is presented by Compass Group and produced by Corey Insko and Jen Fisher. Your hosts are Dr. Clayton Wilcox, Vice President, Ambassador Relations at Compass Group, and Ray McNulty, President of the Successful Practices Network and National Dropout Prevention Center.